Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to The Sharpening Report. I am your host, Josh Peck, and we are in part two of our conversation with Timothy Alberino on his new book, Birthright. Uh, he has agreed to do this entire series after a two-year-long hiatus. If you want the whole series right now and you don't want to wait, you can go to dailyrenegade.com. Get a membership today. It is only $10 a month or $100 a year. If you can do it, I suggest getting the $100 a year. You get two months for free. You just have to pay for it once and you don't have to think about it for a whole year. You'll see the entire series there, so you don't have to wait. If you do want to wait, you're going to get the next installment of the series tomorrow. We are going to release these every single day until the four-part series is over. So without further ado, here's part two with uh, our conversation, Timothy Alberino. Enjoy. Timothy Alberino, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so part two, uh, for those who might have missed us last time, in just a few sentences, can you give us a quick rundown of what we discussed last time in part one? Uh, last time, we, I think we started talking about the parable of the prodigal son and, and, and the, this idea that mankind was created um, for a purpose, not created and then given a purpose, and, and that his purpose was um, fellowship with God in the family of God, fellowship in the household of the father. And also to uh, to have dominion on the earth, to govern the earth as a regent of planet Earth. And I think that's what most of our conversation revolved around. Yeah, definitely. So for those of you, if you have not seen part one, don't worry. You're going to be able to understand this just fine. Uh, but this is part two. There is, there is a first part to the interview. You should go and uh, check that out. Of course, best place to go is dailyrenegade.com because then you can get the full episode. So where we left off last time, we were talking about, uh, like you said, the purpose of man, uh, that, that the, the purpose that we were created for. And uh, this time, let's get into the actual location, Eden. So in Birthright, you do an excellent job of explaining the place and original uh, plan of creation. And you actually say in the book, quote, far from a trivial Sunday school anecdote, the Garden of Eden is a profound allegory pertaining to the transcendent patrimony and purpose of mankind. Uh, beautifully written. Can you explain that? Yeah, I think that the Garden of Eden is uh, like a lot of the ancient writings. Um the, the, the story of the Garden of Eden is meant to encapsulate information. It's, it's not meant to be read literally, uh, in my opinion. Uh, and I think there are some, so obviously some, uh, it, it does constitute to some degree um, an element of history, but obviously there was, a, I believe, in Adam and Eve. I believe Adam was the first man and Eve the first woman. And... Um, but the but the narrative, the way that the, the story of the Garden of Eden is written is, is is very interesting. It's very esoteric and esoteric by design. And people sometimes don't like to hear that. But 
it doesn't matter. I mean, if you read the Bible, much of the Bible is prophecy, and prophecy by design, by nature, is esoteric. That's what prophecy is. An oracle is 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 by design esoteric, uh, and so uh, it has to be unpacked. It has to be understood. It has to be um, contemplated and understood in a particular context. And I think that that is the way that the Garden of Eden story is written. Um, it presents us with some key details, and um, we're given we're, we're given an, an outline, an understanding of, of what's happening. Um, and I think that it requires it does in fact require some some unpacking to truly understand what is being depicted. And that is, of course, I think. Uh, this isn't, I don't think that this is a foreign concept uh, to the people listening to us right now. I mean, um, we all know that the most of us are aware at this point, surely most people in your audience, that that the, the snake in the garden wasn't an actual snake. Uh, it wasn't, you know, like an actual, like a boa constrictor or something like that. I think most people realize that this is a bipedal uh, entity, that this is this entity um, that is being depicted being repre represented with the figure of a snake, but is not in effect, in actuality, a snake. Uh, and so right there, I mean, if you if you accept that idea, that notion that the snake is not actually a snake, it's a being, then then you need to then further extrapolate the rest of the story. Because if the snake is being depicted, if the, I mean, if the being is being depicted, this being who I think looks, looks um, like probably blonde-haired, you know, 30-something-year-old man with blue eyes and, and radiant skin, and that's what I think that that, that being looked like, the snake in the garden. Um, then, then we need to then understand that other things in the story are representations, are, are, are iconographic, and should be then interpreted rather than just read as, as, as literal um, objects or characters and so forth. But again, um, I'm not saying that the story is not talking about Adam, the first man. I believe absolutely it is talking about Adam, the first man. You talk about the concept of uh, places of convergences of worlds, which I thought this was really interesting, too, especially tying it back with our uh, discussion of dimensions of reality and things last time. Do you, do you believe that Eden was one of these places? And do, do any of these places still exist today? I have a very different take on, on the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. Um, it's hard for me to recall because it's kind of it's and, you know, you've read it. It's very technical. Yes. Um, it's hard for me to recall all the technical information that I record in the book. But my my take on the Garden of Eden is that I don't believe that the Garden of Eden was ever on Earth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, you know, I have to I have to, I have to commend um, the work of of uh, uh, David Flynn, the late David Flynn here, because David Flynn made a statement one time that just that just really floored me, offended me at first. And that's often what happens when your paradigm is shaken and shattered. It starts with offense. Um, and David said that he thought that the Garden of Eden might might not have been on Earth. I think he posited that it might have been on Mars, actually, uh, David Flynn. And I was pretty shaken by that because it, it caused me to kind of have to let go of my some of my Sunday school perceptions which at this point, I'm very, very happy that I did because my understanding of the gospel and of the story of, 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 of mankind is much deeper now because I was able to let go of some of those, so what I call what, what I call Sunday school perceptions. Um, and so 
I, I got to thinking about the Garden of Eden, what it might represent. And then if, if the Bible tells us what it represents. It, I think it makes it pretty clear because you have three terms that are used interchangeably. I have somewhere in my book an equation to the effect that, that you know, you have heaven equals paradise equals Eden. Right. I think that's what the way I put it in my book. And and those are the three concepts that that are ubiquitous and and are analogous, I should say, in, in the Bible appear to be analogous. In fact, um, and I would add I would add another one, the father's house. Again, reminding people that Jesus said in my father's house are many rooms. So you have these in the father's house, you have heaven, you have paradise and you have Eden. So either these are all distinct places or they're all the same place. I believe they're all the same place. These are all the same place. We're talking about the Father's house, where the Father dwells. Um, and so was the Father's house, is paradise on earth? Because Eden and paradise are used interchangeably in several places in the, in the scriptures. Okay. And in the extra biblical text. So Eden and paradise are the same thing. Is paradise and heaven the same thing? I think so. I think so. So you have... You have to start to wonder if if heaven is paradise is Eden, then how could Eden have been on earth? How could Eden have been on earth? Are we saying then that the paradise of God is on earth? No, I think that's evident. It's not. It's not on earth. Never was. Okay. So why does the Bible give us a, a, a apparently? Why does the Bible appear to give us uh, coordinates, um, landmarks? Right. For the Garden of Eden, and this is, of course, what people use to 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 make the claim that Eden was obviously a place on Earth. It had a physical location, an address on Earth, because it talks about four rivers and it talks about you know the gold in that land is good and so forth. But I think that what's being communicated is something much more profound than a physical address on Earth. I think there is a physical address, but I don't think it's 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 to paradise itself. I think the physical address is to the gate mm. of Eden. The gate that leads to paradise, and you know what you, what you would consider what you might consider a stargate. Um, and so I, I talk about uh, this concept that's known as an axis mundi. Mm -hmm. You know, before people go accusing me of being a new age person or something like that, uh, the concept of an axis mundi it's, of an axis mundi it's it's just another way of saying a stargate or a portal. Um, but the axis mundi is, is, is it's a very, very ancient concept. Very ancient. I think probably as ancient as the story of Eden itself. And an axis mundi is, is, a, is a place of convergence. Uh, it's the place where the cosmic waters converge. And this idea of the cosmic waters is a Mesopotamian concept. Uh, that the Canaanites and then the, and then going all the way back to the Sumerians, they, they have this concept that there was a location, a, a a very specific location on Earth, or several, but but definitely one in the Middle East, in 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 uh, in in Mesopotamia, very specific location where the cosmic waters converged, and it was in, at this place where the waters converged that you could gain access to other realms. Again, what we would call in 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 this in modern parlance, sci-fi sci parlance, what we would call a stargate, right? A gateway into a gateway that gives access into multiple realms. And 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 I I, I use this illustration in my book. Those who are familiar with uh, the Chronicles of Narnia will recall in the magician's nephew, Diggory and Polly are the two protagonists, and 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 they put on these rings that uh, their the, these rings that their uncles that their uncle had fabricated that manufactured and these rings would allow them to access 
and Axis Mundi. For those familiar with the story, the Wood Between the Worlds was a serene, tranquil place. It wasn't necessarily a world in itself. It was a place, it was an, it was an in-between place. It was a place between the worlds. And you could access these other realms, not other dimensions, other realms within the universe. Um, if you had this ring on and you and, and you could access the, the realms through pools of water on the ground. For those, again, who've, who've read the book, this this is going to be very familiar to them. So uh, so Diggory and Polly, to get into these other realms, they would jump into the, the pools of water. And interestingly enough, one of the realms that they visit um, that, that ends up being the source of a lot of problems in Narnia later on, I can't remember the name, I don't know if you remember it, Josh, but one of them um, was an evil realm. It was a realm that was destroyed. Remember, it was destroyed. It was laid yeah. waste. And they and they it was just totally laid waste. And and they they went into this building. And, and long story short, there were these like uh, kings and queens that were kind of frozen, like like were stone, right? Stone right. statues sitting on thrones. And and they ended up somehow. I don't even remember how they ended up like unfreezing one of them, which was which ended up being the White Witch, mm-hmm. whatever her name was in the in the books. I can't remember her actual name. And she ended up following them back into into to into Narnia, right? And mm-hmm. so. Um, which is, I think is a, I think, I, by the way, I think that Tolkien, I mentioned Tolkien last, I think Tolkien and Lewis, uh, <laughs> uh, were thinking along a lot of the same lines here that oh, definitely. Uh, no, no surprise that I would pick some of this stuff up because I was a huge fan of uh, first Lewis and then Tolkien growing up and probably a lot of people listening to this were too before the movies mm-hmm. and all of that. And, you know, so, so it, anyway, I think that what I was about to say was that I think that was a little bit, again, as a little bit of a of a wink from from C.S. Lewis concerning Mars, <laughs> this place that the that the uh, that the that the White Witch came from, right? That was laid waste, that was desolate, desolate and empty and laid waste, tohu vabohu, so to speak. And and this and this 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 uh, enemy of Narnia ends up coming into uh, Narnia through a portal. And so forth. And people can can go back and play with those ideas, and 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 you know go back to the 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 magician's nephew and and, re, and remind themselves of that scenario. So back to the axis mundi. The axis mundi, that that's an illustration of of how an axis mundi might work. It's a place between the worlds. It's a gateway that gives you access to different different realms. And the an axis mundi is often represented all across the earth. By the way, it, it's this is ubiquitous across the earth. It's a universal representation, usually represented as a tree, as a world tree. Right. And, and people have seen this representation of a world tree. Sometimes it's in a circular uh, a, a formation, and it's of course the branches are reaching to the heaven, uh, to the heavens. The trunk is fixated on the earth, is fixed on the earth, and then of course the the roots go down uh, under the earth. And so what that represents is this three-tiered cosmology. And it's not a literal cosmology, by the way. It's just mm-hmm. the three-tiered depiction of, a, it's like you were saying the other day that, you know, a circle within a square or something like that. It's it's us understanding a very complex thing in a very simplistic way. So you have the tree right. and, and, and you have the branches reaching up to the heavens, which represents the, the heavenly realm. Then you have the, the trunk of the tree, which represents the earthly realm, and then you have the the roots of the tree, which represents the underworld. And this three tiered cosmology is all over the place. I mean, it's in the Inca had this this uh, this three tiered cosmology that was it's represented all over Peru and and all over what was the Incan Empire and lots of different symbols. and And they called this the 
the the the Hanan Pacha, which was the the realm above, and then you have the the Uku Pachas, the underworld, and then the Kai Pacha, which is the 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 surface of the earth. So you got the Hanan Pacha, the Kai Pacha, and the Uku Pacha, the heavens, the earth, and the underworld. Right. So this is the idea, and the reason why I'm going through this long explanation is to say. Again, that the Mesopotamians believed that there was a place where the waters converge, these realms, these where the, where the cosmic waters converge, where you can have access to these realms. Very, very interesting, the, this connection here with C.S. Lewis and the wood between the worlds where the realms were connected by pools of water. So it's kind of this Mesopotamian idea. And that this, this particular place that the Mesopotamians believed that this Stargate was, happens to be on the summit of Mount Hermon. And so, uh, so Hermon was where the the cosmic waters converged, right? So, mm -hmm. um, and and so, long story short, I believe that the gate to Eden was on the summit of Hermon. I know automatically there's going to be people who uh, listen to that, and they're only going to pick out the a one literalistic kind of interpretation and say, "Well, see." Tim's saying that Eden was on Mars and God is an alien and, you know, all this ridiculous stuff because people no. are, are going to do that. But but that's kind of forcing another literal interpretation on onto what you just said, which which you're not taking a, a literal interpretation. And, and like you said, much like in C.S. Lewis's book, um, th this is this is kind of a, a place that that leads into other other places, uh, yeah. so to speak. I don't believe that Eden is on Mars. Right. Uh, I believe that Eden is in paradise. Eden is paradise. And I believe that that gate that Adam had access to paradise before the gates were shut. And we know that the gates were shut. And we know that there were cher cher uh, um, cherubim placed in front of the gates to, to guard the way to the tree of life, to, to guard, to, to shut out access to paradise. And I don't believe that those beings are, gar are guarding uh, the the tree of life, um, the, the the access way, the gateway to the tree of life, simply are there to. They're not simply there to prohibit human beings from accessing the tree of life. I think they're also there guarding the gateway from the members of the insurgency from entering paradise and having access. Uh, and you know, so no, I don't believe that. Uh, I do not believe that Eden is is on Mars. Um, I don't believe that paradise is on Mars. I, I don't know where paradise is, uh, but it's somewhere, right? right? It's got locality. It's got to be somewhere. Um, so, I, and, and, and by the way, um, the Axis Mundi is represented oftentimes. It's, it's, it's also represented by the convergence of the four cardinal of, of the four cardinal directions: north, south, east, west. Is that why we so get the four the four rivers in Genesis when when exactly. talking about these? So it's it's the intersection point between the four cardinal directions. That's that's one of the symbols of the axis mundi. And what do we have in the in the description of Eden? Right. We have four rivers that converge. And by the way, we know that these rivers are converging the, the, according to the, the, um, the description given in the book of Genesis at a high place. Why? Because they flow down into the land, surrounding land. And so we're, we're being given information here that I think needs to be unpacked. And, and so you have the, the convergence of four rivers, again, water converging, the Mesopotamian idea of the waters of the, of the waters converging, um, giving way to this 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 axis mundi, and then it was on the top of Hermon, of course, where the gods were thought to have hold, to 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 have held court, and so this was a place where where, where the gods would be in repose, holding court, and and it was a place where you could have access to the gods, 
where man at one time had interaction with the gods, Mount Olympus, remember, with the Greeks, and then you have Mount Muru, and you have all these different ideas of, of, of access to the gods on the top of a mountain. This is why we have the step pyramids. This is why we have the ziggurats. This is why we have the, the these, these, these different pyramidal structures around the earth that are representations of mankind having access to the gods. Mm-hmm. That access was obviously, it's a, it's, a, it's a recollection of Adam, in my opinion. It's a recollection of where we began. And, and, um, and so obviously it was paganized, and I'm not saying that the ziggurats and stuff and that the Mesopotamian gods are the gods that Adam was interacting with. Um, uh, so people, you know, don't <laughs> need to hear what I'm not saying. I'm, I'm talking about Adam walking in the cool of the day with the maker. Yes. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, too, because you mentioned the tree of life. And in the book, you talk about the two trees in the garden, what those represent. Do you do you believe that the the trees and the sin of eating the fruit are literal, metaphorical, uh, maybe both? How, how do you interpret the trees, the fruit, and the actual sin that took place? I don't know if there were liter- literal trees or literal fruit. There very well may have been. I don't know. Um but I do know that the tree of life is representative of Christ, of, of Jesus, and, and that's apparent in the, in the Bible, and that the tree of knowledge uh, is, represent, is representative of, of Satan, of the adversary. I mean, I think those are, are concepts that uh, should be very familiar to Christians. Jesus is the tree of life. Uh, he is the way. He's the doorway back into Eden. He's the gate. You can't go to the Father um, but through him. And so... Uh, he's the one who gives us access to the tree of life. To those who overcome, he says in the uh, book of Revelation, he will give them access to eat of the, uh, to the tree of life, to eat of the tree of life. So, um, you know, I, I talk about uh, two, I don't want to get in trouble here for getting the, 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 the technicalities of what I wrote. But, but you know, I talk, I, I kind of, in, I don't invent two words, but I invent a new way of thinking about immortality. I, I, I shouldn't say invent it. I, I I present a, a, a very different way to think about immortality, um, which uh, I talk about intrinsic and extrinsic immortality. It's very interesting when we start to contemplate immortality, because what, what exactly is immortality? And people are wondering, who are listening to this, of course, we know what immortality it means. You know, you live forever. Okay, fine. But what are the, what are the, the intricacies here? I mean, if you have intrinsic means something that is innate, right? Something that's inherent. So if you have an intrinsically immortal being, that's a being that was created to be immortal, that is created as an immortal being. In other words, a being that by nature of its very existence, its very creation, it is immortal. It cannot die, right? And then you have what's what I call extrinsic immortality, um, which is an immortality that is contingent on some external factor. So external, uh, ex, um, extrinsic immortality would be, um, would be someone who is immortal, someone who is, who is able to live forever because they have access, for example, to, let's say, fruit from a tree, right? Right. So as soon as they no longer have access to that fruit, they start to die. That is what I call extrinsic immortality. It's contingent on the fruit of the tree. So if you shut them off from access to that fruit, they begin to die. They are not inherently immortal. 
And you got a quote from your book, too, because this was one of the most fascinating things I think I read in that chapter, that, you know, before the fall in the Garden of Eden and after, and, and then after in the restoration in the new heavens and new earth, we, we see the tree of life in, in both of those uh, places. Uh, and some have wondered if we're immortal at that point, you know, why do we need a tree of life? But like you said, you brought up a really interesting take on Genesis 3.22 uh, to explain this, which reads, uh, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So what did you discover about the nature of immortal beings here? Because I, I thought this really helped explain so much, not only about mankind, but about uh, fallen angels as well. You have this very interesting scenario here where the, the Elohim are, are saying exactly what you just said. You know, we can't let Adam have access to the tree of life anymore. Now that he's committed this transgression, he's done something here with, the, with, the, with this being, this this uh, evil being that's tempted him. And so now because of this transgression, uh, he can't have access. He can't, he can't be here anymore in paradise. And by the way, uh, and remember, I think that paradise is the, is the house of God. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he can't be here with us anymore um, in this condition that he's in this, this, this condition of sin. Um, and so now we need to shut him out lest he continue to have access to, to take from the tree of life and eat and live forever, have access and take like us, basically is what they're saying. So, um, and, and by the way, um, you know, this, this, this notion, this, this, um, this visage that I'm kind of painting here, it's not, un, it's not, uh, um, it's not novel. It's, it, this is not an idea that's, that's going to be new to your audience. I think uh, Mike Heiser does a great job in in uh, in elucidating this idea that there's this divine council and and kind of you know breaking us away from the traditional view of 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 uh, the hierarchy in heaven and so um i believe that the son of god is the king you know and 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 and, and the maker the bible tells us that he is the maker that that all things were created through him specifically through him and and, and by him and for him like we talked about last time so so he is he is he is the head. He's the chief. Right. But there is a there's this council around him. There's these other beings. And and so um, the question is, are they intrinsically immortal or are they extrinsically immortal like us? We're extrinsically immortal. According to the scriptures, we our immortality is contingent on something. Uh, and, and obviously that's true because we're not. Um, uh, when we were when we were uh, banished, exiled from Eden, uh, we began to die. Right. Which was not our condition in Eden. And so the question is, uh, what about these other beings? If they're exiled from Eden, do they begin to die? I think it's a fair question. I, I contemplate it. Don't spend a whole lot of time on it in the book, but I certainly I certainly posit the question. And it's very interesting it's very interesting to think about that. Now, let me say this very clearly, that Jesus, who I call the singularity, we talked about that last time, is intrinsically immortal. Right. Uh, um, you know, the father and his son are intrinsically immortal. They, the Bible, in fact, I think, I think it's Paul who says this, and I, and I quote this in, the, in my book, that only God has immortality, truly has immortality. And so, 
uh, I believe that uh, outside of, of, of God, all other beings are extrinsically immortal. Their immortality is contingent on something. So I'm not saying that, that, uh, that God is not intrinsically immortal. In, indeed, quite the opposite. He alone has immortality, true immortality, uh, and cannot die no matter what. Everything else, I think, is contingent on whatever this factor is that, that uh, provides for eternal life and re rejuvenation um, in, the, in, in paradise. So, you know, I, I, I talk a little bit about the, you know, is this where we get maybe some of this idea of, of, of vampires, right? Vampires who suck blood and who can live perpetually as long as they have this access to this sustenance and, and, and vampires in the, in the, in the context of, of, uh, of the insurgency of the bad guys, right? That, that maybe they're, and maybe that's why there's cherub guarding the way to the tree of life. They're not guarding the way from me. I don't even know where it is, right? You, they're not guarding it from, from Tim Alvarino and Josh Peck. I mean, we could, we could spend the rest of our lives hunting around the middle East around uh, Mesopotamia and we'd never find Eden. Right. So why do you need cherub there, right? We can't even see it. I don't think we can perceive it anymore. We talked about perceptual cataracts. I don't think we can perceive the gate anymore. But it's probably still there, and it's being guarded against who? Against us? Well, we can't see it anymore. But I, I'll bet. <laughs> I'll bet that. Uh, I'll bet that the, the Satan can, and 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 his uh, and his and his insurgents, uh, his forces. And so that's who it's being guarded from 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 gaining entry, mm. and uh, and I think uh, that's part of the reason. Part of the plan is is to get back back in there, and have access again. So I write in here in my book, uh, the primordial condition of Adam's extrinsic immortality allows us to answer two contradictory questions in the affirmative. Was man designed to die? Yes. Was man intended? to live forever. Yes. And so that might confuse people, but it, but it transition, it transition, transitions us into what you're into in, 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 into this next topic. And then I write as a biological creature, man was designed with a mortal body subject to entropy as a son of God. He was intended to eat of the tree of life and live forever as a member of the divine family. And, and, and what I mean by divine family is that's what Adam was, the son of God. So I mean in the family of God. Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms, and, and, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I'm going there to prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you there so that you may be where I am. Where, where, where's he taking us? In the father's house, in the family, right? So, um, and I'm not saying that we're gods, none of that. Uh, garbage. Um, I don't subscribe to any of that. We are not gods. We're human beings, right? Made in the image of God, and uh, so I don't want people to to mistake me for that because I, I I don't like that doctrine. I abhor that doctrine. Actually, it really helps kind of round out what this war is is all about. It helps explain our um, our very mortal condition as well. Uh, there's another quote from your book. Uh, quote in Darwin's universe, vast periods of time produce order and uh, complexity, and yet nowhere in this principle 
Nowhere is this principle observed in nature. Time is always the agent of disorder and chaos. So this really helps explain what the tree of life is all about and how we don't have access to it anymore. And right. same with the angels. And so what did you discover about evolution, entropy? Angels. Yeah, the fa fallen angels. Uh, what did you discover about evolution, entropy, and uh, the atrophy of Adam? Entropy is at work in the universe, and you can't escape it. Uh, and I believe that the universe is like a clock. It, it, it was wound up and now it's it's winding down. And I believe that 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 perspective from uh, cosmologists, astrophysicists is, is absolutely accurate. I believe that they're identifying a mechanism that that God created, put into place from the beginning. That in, it originally everything was created through the maker, through the creator, and it, and it, and it had a it had a timestamp on it. That this present creation has a timestamp and it's winding down. It's like the ticking hand on a clock, and and at some point it's it that hand is gonna it's gonna strike midnight, right? And I believe that this is precisely why a new heavens and a new earth is made, because this this one is 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 wearing out like an old garment, right. you know, according to the scriptures. It's wearing out like a garment, and that's and and and, and that is actually the best way to explain entropy mm -hmm. in in this context. Entropy has a couple of different. Uh, um, uh, different definition definitions depending on what you're talking about, but but uh, but you can think of entropy in exactly the way the Bible describes it. It is it is that the universe is where the fabric of the universe is wearing out, and and um, that's evident in our bodies and it's evident in the natural world. And so um, thousands and thousands of years ago, I think that uh, nature, living things, were much more ro robust than they are now. I think that's evident, too, in the fossil record. You see larger creatures and so forth. And I think that everything had longer lifespans. And there wasn't as much, certainly, certainly there wasn't as much uh, genetic uh, uh, disease. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there wasn't as much genetic de de degeneracy, degeneration. We are everything, not just human beings. All life is suffering this gradual decline in our genomes. We're all suffering uh, um, a a, a a increase in entropy and genetic entropy and which is degeneration in our genomes. And so, like I, like I say in the book, and like I said at the conference, uh, back in 2018, I think, uh, or 17, uh, that, you know, to put it bluntly, all of us, all of us, me, you, and everybody listening, we are all really crappy versions of Adam, right? We're really crappy copies of Adam is what we are. And that's a fact, Jack. You could take that to the <laughs> bank. Okay, that's the that nobody can. No, there's nobody who can dispute that. There's no scientist who can dispute the fact uh, of of entropy, the fact of genetic decline, successive genetic decline. In fact, um, population geneticists have identified this and are actually quietly alarmed by it, mm -hmm. realizing that we are the rate of de of degeneration in our genome is increasing. As we go along, we're getting worse. Yeah, you know, I talk about the, um, I talk about the fact that, uh, um, you know, it, it, that the the reason why in the modern age it's it's not so apparent anymore, is because we have a crutch of technology. We have a technological prop, but if that crutch were kicked out from under us, uh, we would realize really fast how uh, how degenerate we are. 
Oh yeah, you know, speaking. And, and, even, and you know, yeah, and even with that, we have a rise in cancers and all sorts of uh, other other genetic diseases as well. There's ten thousand known genetic diseases. Yeah, and growing. The number's growing all the time. Uh, so, uh, you know, we look back a hundred years ago. The the um, the life expectancy was like what was it, uh, forty years old or something like that? If right. You, if About you take into consideration. Yeah, if you yeah. take into consideration the even less than that, it was like forty years old. Even if you take into consideration the the infant death, uh, the 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 infant mortality rate, which was high at the time, right? Um, you know, people, guy, men were living like into their forties, and 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 women were living like into their fifties or something like that. When you factor out the the infant mortality, mm-hmm. um, and that that was not the case thousands of years ago. That was not the case. We know, those of us who believe in the Bible know that that in the antediluvian world, human beings were living very long. And that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. They were much more genetically robust than we are. Mm-hmm. You know, their, their, their biology was, was working a lot better than ours. And so naturally, a result of that would be that you're going to live, you're going to have more longevity. You're, you're going to have more longevity. You're going to have, you're going to be much more physically, mentally, uh, robust, and I would say also psychically uh, um, um, robust than, than than we are today, and so this is just a fact of nature. And and by the way, the the population geneticists, uh, again, they're quietly they're quietly alarmed because they know that we are headed for a an apocalyptic scenario, which they call era catastrophe. Right. An era catastrophe is basically, in layman's terms, it's the point at which the genome becomes so corrupted, so degenerate, that we're no longer viable. We're no longer reproductively viable. We're so screwed up. It's like it's like uh, it's like a mechanism that's breaking down slowly, slowly breaking down until it's just broken beyond repair. Mm-hmm. And that factors into some of the stuff that uh, you're going to encounter at the end of the book, um, because I think that uh, somebody's going to show up. And offer to repair our genome with their own genetic material, but I'm getting ahead of our, we're getting ahead of ourselves now. No, I totally agree. Uh, and anything that you read, did they did they have any kind of estimation as to when they think that this is going to happen? I'm trying to remember. Um, I think the estimates vary, but but I do know that that population geneticists are quietly alarmed. They're they're yeah. quietly alarmed. We're 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 getting to a point here where. You know, our technology is going to have to sup- start to supplement in a, in a much more, much more significant way our genetic weakness. Yeah. Um, uh, and there's a book called The Genetic Entropy by uh, Dr. Sanford, who was uh, the inventor of the gene gun. Um, uh, and it worked, uh, I believe, at Cornell. And uh, he wrote a book called Genetic Entropy. And he's a believer. F- fantastic book. I think his work is unimpeachable. Uh, he was a he's top-notch geneticist. The guy knows what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And um, so this is just the, this is what I call the atrophy of Adam. This is the result of the fall, the wages of sin. This is, these are the wages of sin. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and so, what do you think that you know of the original plan of creation? What do you think that would have been like day to day life uh, for for Adam before the fall? What what were we meant to be doing? Because you talk, um, I you know, I think we get this idea in in church that ba- basically our our whole purpose was just to kind of lay around and and a couple of naked uh, naked yeah. gardeners. <laughs> yeah, but you yeah exactly. But but you talk you talk about uh, things that were that we might have actually 
meant to be doing. You talk about uh, a little bit about work. You talk a little bit about procreation and things like that in the book. Uh, do you think that these were part of the the original planned uh, plan for mankind before the fall? I think that this idea of gardening and pruning and tending a garden, this is all, this language is metaphoric. Mm-hmm. I think clearly what you have is you have Adam being a son of God in the household of God, in the council of God, and that he is the regent of the earth and that his his charge is to govern the earth and that Adam was supposed to set up, was, was supposed to expand the kingdom of heaven on earth. A lot of us believe that. There's, a lot of, there's been a lot of books and a lot of great writers who've written about this in the past. This isn't, this isn't a new idea. Um, and I think it's absolutely correct that, that uh, Adam was charged with, he was, a, he was the regent of the earth. He represented the king, the kingdom of heaven, and and he was he was to to spread out on the earth and 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 to create a, an earthly kingdom that was that was an extension of the kingdom of heaven. And no, it it doesn't it did, was not the idea was not to have a nudist colony, you know, <laughs> and like this that where people live forever and everybody's laying around playing harps, laying by you know bubbling brooks and things of this nature and fountains. No, this isn't what we're talking about. We're talking about a kingdom. This is a kingdom, and whether people like it or not, I'm, I said it. It offends people. I'll say it again, um, and that is that the uh, the kingdom of heaven is very much like an empire. Mm-hmm. And the word empire, this isn't some evil. You know, everybody when I say empire, they, they probably think of Darth Vader. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, and and um, uh, this is not the kind. An empire is just it's just a kind of government, mm-hmm. and and an empire encompasses a lot of realms. It encompasses different realms, and each realm has a regent. There's a regent, you know. If you think a um, um, a, um, a procure, you know, in the in the in the, uh, in the Roman Empire, governors and 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 procures and 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 so forth. Regents, regents of the emperor who who have like small kingdoms that are all enveloped in the empire. Right? That is an accurate. I think that is an accurate depiction of the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. And the earth was supposed to be a realm governed by us, by Adam. And by the way, it still is a realm governed by us. We did not. And this is something that uh, I disagree with a lot of people who say that Adam lost his dominion. He did not lose his dominion. Let me tell you something. If Adam lost his dominion, if the human species lost its dominion on earth, we would know it. Believe me, because somebody else would be running the show down here. And and people will say, well, somebody else is running the show. Look how evil you know people are. Okay, fine, but it's still us. It's still us. We are still the kings. We are still the governors. We are still the regents. We're still the ones running things on the earth. Uh, and, and we're supposed to rule. We're supposed to govern according to the kingdom of heaven. We're supposed to be good governors. And we're supposed to execute uh, uh, the governance of God in righteousness. And, 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 and there's a mandate to govern well according to the principles of the kingdom of heaven. And it's when we get away from that that we get that when we get in, in, in big trouble. You know, I think I say in my book, you know, there's never been a time when anything other than a human being in parentheses or a hybrid human has ruled on the earth, has has occupied a human throne. Because the caveat there is, is indeed that there has been a time when hybrid humans have ruled the earth. And that this whole idea that I'm talking about, that only man, only men, only mankind has the right to rule on planet earth. Only mankind has the right to rule on planet earth. Um, this factors into the, the very, the very, uh, um, uh, the, 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 the primary theme of my book, by the way, this is a proof copy. That's what I got a line there. Um, 
this is the primary theme of my book, which is which is this idea of a birthright. It is our birthright to govern the earth. And, and, the, and the birthright cannot be stolen from us. It can't be taken away from us by force. It can, however, be abdicated. Mm. And it can be usurped. Okay, so those are different, those are different ideas. To steal something is if you have, if you're holding like, you know, a book in your hand and I come over and I come over and take it from you. I've stolen it from you. I've taken from taken it from you by force. So there's nothing you could do to stop me because I've overpowered you, right? That's one idea. That's taking, that's stealing something. Mm-hmm. But the, but if if you were to give me the book of your own accord, willfully surrender the book to me, that is abdication. Mm. Okay, you've abdicated the book to me. That's a different that's a different concept entirely. I'm not taking it from you by force. You're abdicating it to me. Um, but there's a third concept, in, in, which is a usurpation, which is a usurpation, which is more complex, which is me taking your place and having the same right that you do to that book. Okay, those are three different concepts. You can have something stolen. You can. You can abdicate the possession or it can be usurped. Mm. All right. So so a, a human authority can be abdicated to the dragon and his minions. Now, that doesn't mean that they have the right to occupy a human throne. No, they don't. Only we have the right to uh, only the sons of Adam have the right to occupy the thrones of Adam, human thrones. OK, um, and this is all very clear in the scriptures. And I make it I I. I you know, I demonstrate that the Bible is, is in fact saying this. Uh, so only the sons of Adam can occupy the thrones of Adam, human thrones. Okay. However, our authority can be abdicated to whoever we want. And how do we abdicate authority? Authority? Idolatry. Mm. That's how we abdicate authority. And that's why idolatry is such a dangerous thing. I'm not talking about this, this, these weird notions of idolatry, like, you know, um, if I love a TV show too much, it <laughs> right. can become I, I, idolatrous. No, no, no. We've lost. No, no, no. That's not idolatry. <laughs> idolatry is not, by the way, a lot of people are going to get ticked off at me. I don't care. Be mad at me. Idolatry is not setting up a Christmas tree or, or something like that. Right. That's not idolatry. All right. Idolatry is very specific in the Bible. Yeah. Idolatry is willfully abdicating and worshiping another entity, another being, worshiping that being as deifying that being, worshiping them, um, paying obeisance to anybody else except for the father and his son. That's it. You, If you pay obeisance to any other entity besides Yahweh, it's idolatry. And that's it. There's no other definition of idolatry. It's not what you want it to be. That is it. And there's a reason for that. There's a very specific reason why idolatry is such an offense. First of all, it's a slap in the face of the maker, of the king who gave us dominion of the earth. He commissioned us. He gave us dominion of the earth. And for us to abdicate our our authority on earth to the enemies of God is a slap in his face, number one. Okay. Number two, it's very dangerous because the only way that the devil can gain authority in our realm is when we give it to him Mm -hmm. 
That's how he gains authority in our realm. That's how the enemy gains influence in our lives and in, and, and in our governments and in our, is when we give it to him. We have to abdicate it. Okay. We have to we have to give authority over to the devil. And that, that happens through idolatry. Now, even though we may worship the devil in the guise of Jupiter, as the Romans did, or the devil in the guise of uh, of Zeus, as the Greeks did. It doesn't it, it does not authorize him to occupy a human throne. It doesn't. He never has and he never will. His son will. <laughs> we'll get to that later. But he never has and he never will because he doesn't have the authority to occupy a human throne. However, we can abdicate our authority to him and allow him influence in our realm. That's the key. When idolatry allows the insurgency, which is the devil and his forces, to have influence in our realm and to operate on a level that is otherwise prohibited. Okay, so when you commit idolatry, when your nation openly worships Jupiter, which which was which is which just another which is just an aspect of of of, of Satan openly worships Jupiter. You have now created an environment over every realm that, 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 that your empire it has governance over. You have created an environment in which the enemy can now have open influence in your realm. Okay? That's idolatry. That's the danger of idolatry. And that's why it is so... Um, that's why it's such an abomination in the scriptures. It's a slap in the face of God who gave us the dominion of the earth. Number one, slapping him in the face, Yahweh slapping him in the face. And number two, it's allowing his enemies to have influence in our realm. And, 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 and that influence is demonic influence. It's, that's why he's the prince of the power of the air. And the power of the air I don't believe that means, you know, like the atmosphere or the stratosphere or whatever. I don't believe that's what it means at all. I think it means the influence, the that the the influence over the zeitgeist of the culture. Um, and it allows that's and that's and that's us. That's us giving him authority. Now, here's a very, very important uh, precept here. OK. If I'm a king. If I'm an emperor, right. Mm -hmm. And I'm and I'm going to extend my empire, my kingdom. I'm going to extend it over into another uh, area. We're going to we we just my armies have just conquered this territory, and now I need to govern that territory. What do I do? I appoint a regent mm -hmm. who is going to govern for me, right? So I'm going to appoint I'm going to, I'm going to appoint a regent. So I'm going to authorize that regent. I'm going to give him the authority, my authority to go to this portion of my kingdom and govern in my name. Right. Okay. He needs to have a certificate. He needs to have a seal of my authority that this, this individual, this region needs to be bearing the seal of my authority so that everybody knows I sent him. Number one. And number two, this individual, this regent needs to have the armies of my kingdom ready to defend the authority that I've given him and to defend that realm. Without those two things, that regent is ineffective. Right. Okay. So if that regent shows up to govern this, this newly conquered area 
Uh, I, we've expanded the empire. I sent my region to govern that uh, part of the, of, the, of, the, of the kingdom. And he shows up without any kind of signet, without any seal, without any authentication, authentication that I indeed sent him. Nobody's going to take him seriously. Is anybody going to respect his claim? No. He doesn't have any proof. He's just some guy saying, I am the governor of this realm, right? Right. Or, or alternatively, if he shows up with, 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 uh, with uh, um, authentication, look, I've got the ring, I've got this, here's the seal, here's, the, here's my deed, and here's the seal of the king, right? Here's my authentication, okay? But if the kingdom doesn't have a standing army, does anybody care? Would, would anybody care about his claim? I'm here to govern on behalf of the king. Of course not. The first contender would simply sweep in with their army and take over. Right. Right? All right. Now you have to understand that this is the scenario that's happening with us, the regents of the earth. Our authority is enforced on the earth by the armies of the kingdom. Period. Okay? Our authority is enforced by the armies of the kingdom. That's why our enemies, any enemy, can't just come and take over. That's why the devil, for example, can't just show up tomorrow, reveal himself with his legions, and just throw out all the human governors and start to occupy the thrones of men. He does not have the authority, and he can't do it. Why? Because he is being restrained. Right. Okay? So... Can't do it because the armies of the kingdom will kick his butt if he tries. All right. It's a very simple concept. We understand this. I mean, this is this is the way it works in human in in, 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 in a human context, too. But let's 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 backtrack here to the more important issue because we got the armies of the kingdom. Here's the here's the here's the here's the crux of this book. Okay. What gives us the authority? What is the seal of our authority? as human beings. And I contend that the seal of our authority is the image we bear. Mm. That's the seal. Mm -hmm. It's the image we bear. And I, in my book, I demonstrate how, you know, I was talking about if I'm a king and I send you, my regent, over to govern a realm, I send you with a, a certificate of authentication that you are my regent and you bear that certificate. And oftentimes, in most cases, uh, a regent that would be dispatched from a king would be carrying a certificate, either a cylinder, you know, if it's way back in the ancient times, Mesopotamians, or let's say, you know, the medieval times might be carrying a parchment, right? Right. And that parchment or that cylinder will be sealed. It's going to have a seal on it of authentication, of authentic. Authentication, okay, sealed with authentication. And if it's a if it's a parchment, you know, picture a scroll with the wax seal. And we've all seen this in movies and stuff. And where the where the king or the pope will put a little bit of drip a little bit of wax on the on the rolled up parchment, and or whatever it doesn't have to be rolled. And then they'll take their signet ring. Usually, they'll, they'll take their signet ring. That's what a signet ring is, and they'll press it down onto the wax and it will imprint an image 
And do you know what that image was? Usually, almost in, in most cases, it was an image of their likeness. Mm. Okay? So if I'm a king, I'm giving you, I'm, I'm about to give you a, a certificate of authentication that you are my regent. Okay? Before I give you the certificate, I roll it up, I drip some wax on it, then I take my signet ring, which has my likeness on it. My image, my likeness is on the signet ring. And I take that ring and I seal, I press it down into the wax. And I hand you this certificate of authentication that has my likeness sealed on it. That's us. That's Adam. So imagine God creating Adam to have dominion, giving him the title deed of the earth, right? He pictured God, and I know this, is an, this obviously isn't what happened actually, but, but, but as, a, as a thought experiment, picture God taking his ring, his seal with his likeness on it and pressing it into the earth and clay. Mm -hmm. He sealed us with his image. Wow. We literally bear his seal of authentication that we have dominion on the earth. And the, and the image we bear, literally what we look like, this image identifies us. We are identified as those who have authority from the king. Just like that, that seal on, uh, on, the, on the parchment, what I, what, and you carry that seal on the parchment with you as my regent. If somebody challenges you, you show them that seal. Mm-hmm. Look, I have authority from the king. And if you cross me, guess what's going to happen? The armies of the kingdom are going to show up. Right? That's us. That's our situation on earth. Mm. And so we're made in the likeness of God. We're sealed with his image. I believe that the and that's part of our birthright. And when we and when we replicate that image through reproduction, our children are sealed with Adam's birthright, the, the, with, with the dominion of the earth, with the authority that with which God has invested Adam. We all, and it's a collective thing, by the way, and it doesn't just pertain to Christians or, or, or Hebrews or something. It's the human race, okay? And so we're sealed with the image of God. And so then I, without going too much further into this, kind of giving you a preview of what's coming ahead in the, in the last chapters, what happens when we forfeit the image of God? When we evolve out of Adam, when we become post-human and we surrender the authority of, of God that is contingent on this seal, the image we bear, what happens? And I answer that question. And I believe that will happen at the end, and that is the that is the machination, that is the Luciferian machination to usurp the authority, the dominion of planet Earth. And that is how they and that and that's how it's done. And that and that, by the way, has happened. It happened one time in the past, and that was at the advent of the watchers. Absolutely, yes. And there are still people today uh, who called this time in history the Golden Age. And we do have to talk about the Golden Age. But before we do, where can people uh, get your book and follow you online? 
Uh, the only place my book is available right now is on Amazon.com. And uh, it's it's uh, you can find it. You should before you would type my name and it'd be like 10, 10 items down. But now it's kind of working its way to the top. I think it might be at the top now. So just type my name in. It's the only thing I have on Amazon. Type my name in on Amazon. Or if you have a hard time finding it, you can go to my website and there's, you know, click on the link there. There's a direct link on my website. And if you want to follow me, you know, the best way to do it is, is to sign up for my mailing list. And that's it. Right now, it's in an obscure location on the bottom of my website. I'm going to move it up pretty soon. Maybe today I'll work on it and put it in a more clear spot. It's on there. It's like at the very bottom. And, you know, don't email me to sign up. Just sign up. Just put your email in on the sign up and click sign up and, and you should be good to go. So that's how people can follow me and get my book. Excellent. What's your what's your web address? TimothyAlbrino.com. Excellent. Well, we have a lot more to talk about. Uh, Fall of the Watchers, Book of Enoch, Cyclopean Architecture, the Satanic Priesthood of Cain, you know, lesser known facts about uh, what the Flood of Noah was really about, and so much more. So we might look back to the time before the fall as uh, as a type of golden age for us, you, you know, but there's another golden age different from uh, the time that Adam walked with God. Instead, this was a time where gods walked with men. What can you tell us about this concept of the golden age? The golden age universally across the earth um, in, 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 every, in every ancient, major ancient culture on earth. And I say major, I mean like there's a lot of obscure little cultures and stuff that maybe didn't have this mythology. But the, but the big cultures on earth, uh, the primary cultures, all um, told stories about a time when the gods dwelt among men. And those stories usually... Uh, uh, involve details regarding the gods, not only dwelling among men, but copulating with the daughters of men and creating demigods, hybrid demigods. And again, this is ubiquitous across the earth. And it's well known that this this golden age narrative um, is, mysteri is mysteriously everywhere. It's universal. And so um, that's the way that that's the paganized version. It's when we say golden, golden age. Because the golden age is it's it's lauded by the ancients. It's it's this time of great knowledge. It's it's this time that's that's looked back to with longing, uh, um, and it, and it really is is what the ancients were looking forward to with longing that that this golden age would would that there would be another advent of the golden age on earth, and this is what they were secretly longing for, and not secretly secretly now the the. Uh, uh, Luciferians and, and some of these uh, secret societies are secretly longing for and working towards the um, um, working towards the resurrection, um, the reinstitution of the golden age. But in the ancient world, this was the time of great knowledge in their minds. It was a time before the the great cataclysm, usually depicted as a flood. Um, but the flood encompassed everything. Everything bulk, there was there was a lot of volcanism. There was a lot of seismic activity. You know the, the Noahic flood. So it's it's depicted a little bit different in each in each culture, but usually as a flood. And so this was a time. This this golden age was a time before the flood of Noah. Um, and again, uh, in the pagan world, it's it's a it's a time um, of of great knowledge and peace and prosperity, except except the Hebrews, they had a different account. Mm -hmm. The Hebrews almost stand alone in that they have a, they have a, the, their account, their reckoning of the golden age is the polar opposite. 
they view the golden age as an intrusion of the gods into earth, um, into the earth, and that, that the gods wrought corruption and chaos and bloodshed and rebellion, and that and that it was a time of great suffering, and and it was a time of war and unrest, the very opposite, the polar opposite of what the of what the pagan account is. And that uh, and it, too, ended in a great cataclysm. And of course, that's the flood of Noah. And it was it was uh, um, it ended uh, as a result of God's wrath to bring to an end this what I call the empire of the gods. One thing that's really interesting, you talk uh, a lot about the book of Enoch and, you know, it doesn't only give us a clearer picture of Genesis six, but there's often something that's. Uh, usually overlooked by others, but you go into detail about it in Birthright. Uh, the amazing prophecies of, of Jesus. What, what does Enoch say about Jesus, and how does it help fill in some of the context in the Bible? Yeah, that 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 pushes us forward to to, to the to to the the future chapter of uh, Jacob and Esau. But but there's a lot the, the pro, there's astounding prophecies from the Book of Enoch regarding Christ, messianic prophecies. And the book of Enoch uh, opens up addressing a, a generation that would that would live at the age. Um, you can make the argument that, that the book of Enoch opens up addressing the generation that would be alive when the flood comes. But I think there's a dual there's a dual interpretation there that it's addressing addressing both the impending flood because it was Enoch uh, a few generations behind Noah, and also the 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 cataclysm that's coming at the end of the age. Right. Because the cataclysm that's coming at the end of the age is likened to the flood. It's 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 it might even be the same mechanism that caused the flood that causes the, the great cataclysm at the end of the age. It's a different conversation. Um, so, yeah, the, the book of Enoch is there are just incredible. I, I, I go into a lot of detail about the book of Enoch because um, there's a lot of controversy surrounding the book of Enoch. But but I, I think the messianic because the messianic content is so prescient and accurate. A lot of people assume that the Book of Enoch, that those portions of the Book of Enoch, must have been written um, in the in the age of the apostles or shortly thereafter. Yeah, they say the same thing about Daniel and and all that. Exactly. If there's an accurate prophecy, it must have a later date. (laughs) Exactly. So, but I I think that uh, I I'm absolutely persuaded that, and of course, there's three versions. I don't want to get bogged down in you know doing a whole discussion on the Book of Enoch, but there's three versions of the Book of Enoch, and only one of them is credible. Mm-hmm. And and you know so, um, but anyway, there's some phenomenal messianic content in the Book of Enoch that's undeniable, and and it does relate to the 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 the, the, the events that transpired before the first cataclysm, and similar events that are going to transpire before the final cataclysm at the end of the age. The end of the age, by the way, the age in which we are now in. We are in the, the final age. Yeah, it began with the birth of Christ. We're in the age of Pisces, and and when it changes to Aquarius, I believe that's the end of the age. And so, the stuff is coming, and it's coming soon. We have that great example from the ancient past uh, of of sort of what we can expect. And obviously, we can't we can't bring up Enoch and not talk about the fall of the Watchers. Uh, a lot of people watching probably already uh, know the basic story, but you bring out some other details that not everyone has heard, and, and it really shows how bad this time of history really was. What what are some of these lesser known details about not only human DNA perversion but also animal hybridization as well? Yeah, I I. I mentioned the the book of the giants which was found in the dead sea scrolls um it's very fragmented so we don't really know the full 
story of the Book of Giants. It's kind of just highlights and, and adds some some additional information into the general narrative of Genesis six, the narrative of the of the Book of the Watchers and Enoch. And it it, it talks about the, the, the Watchers not just corrupting um, the human species, but all different kinds of animal species on Earth. And whether that corruption was through direct fornication or whether it was through some kind of uh, germline uh, genetic engineering, I don't know. But I do know that the corruption of the human species was a result of fornication. There's no doubt about that. So whether the angels then went and copulated, whether the, the sons of God went and copulated with the animals, and I doubt it. I think that was probably some kind of a germline um, genetic uh, engineering scenario. But, you know, let me let me go back to the beginning because... One of the the first thing that I deal with when talking about the fall of the Watchers is what I call the and I, we mentioned this I think actually I might have mentioned this to Derek Gilbert but the the fall of the Watchers began with what I call the first cause. What was the first cause of the fall of the Watchers? And I think the first cause of the fall of the Watchers was was um, very clearly lust. They lusted after the daughters of Adam. They saw human women, and they lusted. After all, they were watching. <laughs> They're watchers. And they're looking down and, and, and seeing these, these, uh, these, the female counterpart of Adam, um, uh, females, um, uh, the, the wives of, of Adam's offspring, of, of his male offspring. And, and so uh, they, were, they were envious of the men for their wives. So when we talk about the fall of the watchers, we have to deal with what I call the first cause. And the first cause of the fall of the watchers is very clearly lust. Whether people like it or not, that's what both the, the book of Genesis, Genesis 6 says, and also the book of Enoch, the account of Enoch and other extra biblical texts. And so the first cause is unequivocally lust. They saw the daughters of Adam and they lusted after them. But that's not all that they did. They lusted after the women, but they also desired to produce their own offspring, which is very important. So I think that there are three um, that there are there are three primary things that the Watchers coveted, and these were the three primary motivations of the descent of the Watchers. And I'm just going to read them right out of my book. I list them in my book. Number one is wives. Mankind was granted a special privilege that was not afforded to the sons of God, a female counterpart, a wife. The Watchers envied men for their wives, number one. Number two, offspring. Because men have female counterparts, they could procreate offspring. The Watchers wanted to beget their own children and have families, like the sons of Adam. Number three, dominion. Mankind was given dominion of planet Earth. The Watchers coveted man's dominion and plotted to usurp it by producing their own human hybrid sons. This is perhaps the most important and overlooked aspect of their transgression. And it is indeed the most important and overlooked transgression of uh, aspect of the Watchers' transgression. The Watchers, I believe, had this, this, they plotted to usurp Adam's dominion on earth. How were, how were they going to do it? They knew that Adam had dominion. His dominion is being enforced by the armies of the kingdom, like we talked about earlier. So how can they usurp his dominion? And, and and basically take over the earth without themselves stealing it from Adam, because they're not allowed to do that. So they have to usurp the throne of Adam. And the only way that they could do that was to produce heirs to the throne. 
that were human enough to appropriate Adam's authority and to receive the birthright of his genome. Human enough to appropriate the authority and the dominion of Adam. And that's precisely what they did. And I think actually it was pretty ingenious what they did because not only did they create hybrids who were human enough to usurp the dominion of the human race on earth, but these hybrids also were really big. These were, <laughs> these were um, exceedingly large and powerful entities. So not only could they have the right to Adam's throne, not only could they claim the right to Adam's throne, they had the, the, the prowess, the ability, the power to take it by force. And that's precisely what they did. And I believe that the Watchers then created a scenario. They, 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 they instituted what I call, again, the Empire of the Gods, mm. a scenario in which the gods, the Watchers, were on Earth. They did not have the authority of Adam, so they circumvented that problem by producing their own offspring who, who, who were legal claimants to the throne, who could occupy human thrones because they were human enough to do it. And they did indeed occupy human thrones. And men willingly worshipped them and bowed down to them, the offspring of the gods. And remember, by, by the way, I believe that the, the, the Watchers struck a bargain with a faction of the human race, with the line of Cain. Mm. I believe the Watchers struck a bargain with the, off, with the sons of Cain, they would give them what they wanted, and in turn, they would get what they wanted. Remember, we're the, we are the regents of Earth. People need to get this in their heads. You can't have fallen angels, which is, by the way, the term fallen angels is a contrivance. Right. I really like to use it because it's not a biblical term. But, it, I, I mean, the concept is, is true enough. <laughs> fallen angels can't just come and kick us out and take over. If they could, they would have a long time ago. The watchers couldn't just come down, set up shop and, 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 you know, just eradicate us all. They did not have the authority to do that. And they knew that they would be that they that, that they would be in trouble if they tried very, very quickly, mm -hmm. you know, because the armies of the kingdom would show up who enforce our authority. All right. So they had to strike a bargain with us. We had to advocate authority. We had to allow them to grant them to do something. Okay, and this is what the Book of Enoch says. The Watchers came down. You know, they they landed on Hermon. They they came. By the way, remember, where's that gate that I say to Eden to the Axis Mundi? Mm -hmm. Hermon. Right. It's no coincidence that they show up on Hermon. Okay, they come down into the plains, and I believe they strike a bargain with specifically with the with the sons of Cain, with the offspring of Cain. Okay, they strike a bargain, and the bargain is. We're going to give you guys, we're going to teach you the knowledge that you were striving to learn. This is what the Book of Enoch says. The Watchers taught men the knowledge they were striving to learn. So the Watchers already knew what the, the knowledge that, that the offspring of Cain were attempting to, 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 to learn, that they were desirous to learn. All right? The Watchers had that knowledge. We'll teach you. What do we want in return? Give us your your daughters. Mm -hmm. Let us take them as wives. Notice, uh, Josh, that they didn't just come down and fornicate. Right. They didn't just come down and rape women. They wanted wives. They took wives. So they chose wives. I want to marry your daughter. 
Give me your blessing to marry her. I will give you knowledge. You give me the blessing. You give me the blessing to marry your daughter. Give me the legal precedent, the legal authority to marry your daughter, me a watcher, and I'm going to give you in turn knowledge. It's a bargain. A bargain was struck. Okay? Why? Because we're the regents of the earth. The watchers are coming into our domain. By the way, anybody or anything aside from the king himself who comes into our domain is in our jurisdiction. Right. Right? We're the regents. You break the law in our realm, guess who's going to judge you? The regents. Hmm. This is why it says in the, I believe Paul says that we will judge angels. Which angels? Specifically the ones that transgressed in our realm. Okay? We're the regents. We have the authority. You come into our realm, you interlope into our realm, you transgress in our realm, we have the authority to judge you. That's why Enoch was appointed as the, what would you call him? Uh, he was the intermediary mm -hmm. between God and the watchers. It had to be a man. They broke the law in our realm, and therefore it was a son of man, Enoch, who was delivering their sentence. Okay? God used a human intermediary purposely to judge the watchers who committed, even though the watchers are of a higher state than we are. When they're in our territory, they're under our jurisdiction. Mm. All right. In the same way that if I'm, you know, you and I, if you and I are uh, diplomats from the United States, the most powerful government on earth, and we go to Peru and we break the law in Peru, which is which is not even close to being as powerful as our government. Right. It doesn't matter. You and I would still be subject to the laws of Peru, and then we would be judged by Peruvian judges or under their jurisdiction. Right. Right. Same concept. So the watchers had to strike a bargain. They're trying to get this done without uh, without the kingdom of heaven interfering. Mm -hmm. They're trying to do it legally. All right. The game has rules. Like I say in my book, the Game of Thrones has rules. It's not chaos. No, God is not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. And there's procedure and there is order. And you can't nilly willy break the laws. Not the laws of physics and not the laws of God. You can't. All right. Not and get away with it. OK, so the watchers are here. They're in our jurisdiction. They know that in order to do what they want to do, they have to be sly. They have to be cunning, just like the serpent. They have to be cunning. They have to get us to abdicate our authority, authority and then they have to usurp the, the dominion of the earth. They can't just take it. They have to usurp it. So they strike a bargain with the offspring of Cain. I believe it was the offspring of Cain, and there's reasons why I say that. Strike a bargain. We're going to teach you the knowledge you want. You give us your wives in marriage. Above board and legal, right? Uh, the, the offspring of Cain were legally authorized to give their wives in marriage. And, of course, this is the way that the ancient world worked. You know, it wasn't like Match.com where you just go out and find a partner and you end up marrying him. No. The fathers who were the authority in their households, they were the, they were the, the, uh, the, the chiefs of their homes, right? They could give they, – they had to give their daughters in marriage. Give them in marriage. You had to get the father's blessing. And, by the way, that law is still in effect even though we don't follow it anymore. Right. That doesn't mean it's not an operation, okay? And there's problems that arise when it's not done properly. It's just the way it is. So, so 
the fathers had to give their daughters in marriage. You had to get them. And, you know, that's where the dowries and things like this come to play. So the watchers, you know, they gave a dowry mm -hmm. for the hand of the daughters. They gave knowledge. The men gave their daughters in marriage, not rape, not just fornication, in marriage. Very important point there. Yeah. What's it demonstrating? It's demonstrating our authorities, what it's demonstrating. Okay. Given that given their daughters in marriage, and then the watchers gave their knowledge. They taught, they taught men to do all these things, right? And they wrought great evil in the earth. It's like giving kids matches and, and sending them to run through dry fields, to go play in dry fields, right? So, so the watchers then did something very cunning. They had their wives now, they got these wives, so they get to fulfill the first cause. They get to fulfill their first desire, which is to take wives and to copulate with them because they lusted. They were lusting after these women. They copulated. Now they get to fulfill their second desire, which is to procreate offspring, hybrid offspring. And that is indeed what they did. The women gave birth to hybrid half-breed sons, possibly daughters too, certainly half-breed sons, okay? And these sons, you and I, I think, talked about this before. There's some tale in which the women's, you know, uh, um, uteruses burst open and the, their bellies burst open and these giant babies came rolling out. I, I'm of the persuasion, those are in some extra biblical texts, I'm of the persuasion that, that it's, it was like very much like gigantism. Mm -hmm. Women give birth to babies with gigantism, normal-sized babies. And those babies, because of the, the disease of the genetic uh, uh, anomaly of, of, of gigantism, their growth accelerates. After they're born, their growth accelerates. Mm -hmm. And they end up becoming huge. So that same principle could have been in fact. The women could have given birth to normal-sized babies. And then something in their genomes kicked in, accelerated growth. Okay? And there's probably half a dozen other ideas. So, um, so these, these, these hybrids are emerging from the womb, part watcher, part, I'm going to use this term, elder race, mm -hmm. and part human race. What ratio? They're probably a little bit more elder race according to the Book of Enoch, because it said you were mainly of your fathers, remember? Um, but human enough to inherit the birthright of Adam. Yeah. And there's the key to Legally inherit the birthright of Adam. So watch what the watchers. So watch what the watchers did. The watchers legally made a, an agreement with the regents of the earth, us for our daughters. We give you knowledge. You give us your women to take as wives, and then they gave birth to legal claimants to the throne of Adam, human enough to occupy that throne. Okay, and that's exactly what they did. And then, you know, the watchers achieve their, through their sons, they achieve. So through their wives, they achieve their second objective, the procreation of their sons. And through their sons, they, they achieve the third objective, dominion of the earth by proxy. And I talk a lot about this idea, rule by proxy. It's very, very important. I won't go into it now, uh, but it's in my book, this concept of rule by proxy. So. So if I can't legally have dominion on the earth, but I can create a hybrid son who can, then I can, in effect, rule from behind his throne. All right. And now we are setting up a shadow. Now we're beginning to understand 
maybe what the dragon is going to do with his son at the end of the age. His son, Apollo, at the end of the age. And that's what happened. So they usurped the earth, dominion of the earth. Men, according to the book of Enoch, um, they, were, they were subjugated to the offspring of the watchers and they had to feed them, remember? And when they couldn't sustain them anymore, what did the, watchers, what did the offspring of the watchers do? Because they were giants. They devoured the men. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was a dystopia. It was a dystopia in which the offspring were ruling the earth. Men had lost dominion. It was usurped. And uh, that's why the slate had to be cleaned in this, and, and there had to be a reset. In the book, you talk about, you know, the satanic dragon priesthood of uh, Cain, how that connects with things like Cyclopean architecture, which this is just the remnants of uh, these hybrids uh, that, that you talked about that still exist today. We can still see these sites uh, from the Golden Age. But like you said, uh, there had to be a reset. And you bring out some really interesting things about the flood, such as how, uh, you know, the, the angel Raphael uh, was commanded to heal this plague before the flood so that Noah's sons could have genetically pure wives and how that paved the way for Jesus. What are, so, what are some of the things that you uh, found that gives us the real story behind the flood that only mankind had the right to rule the earth instead of this uh, cartoonish Sunday school version that most uh, Christians are told? You raise a critical point here, which is that, of course, you know, you got to ask the question, where was the devil in all of this, right? When I say the devil, of course, the devil is a very generic colloquial term that, that uh, you know, the, I think the, the, the best designation is the dragon. Right. That's who this really. You know the you know who this is. This is uh, this like it's like the Harry Potter series. It's like Voldemort, he who shall not be named, or however it is. That's how the Bible treats this guy. Yeah, you're never told. You're never because his name isn't Lucifer. That's not the, that's not his name. And you know it's okay for people to call him Lucifer. I, I, I guess that's an appropriate designation because it does fit. Um, but but we're not told his name. It's it's his name is not to be spoken. It's like it's like his name is he's so abominable that 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 uh, he's so despicable that that his name isn't spoken. Right. That's how this that's how this character is treated in the Bible. Right. And so um, uh, he's called by many names and, and 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 dragon is one the dragon. But I think there are more than one dragon, by the way. I think there's seven. And I get into that in the book. But uh, so. Uh, this goes back to, you know, what people have called the seed war, you know, back in Genesis three, where where the, the maker himself pronounces this 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 prophecy that uh, the offspring of the in, in short, the offspring of the of the serpent would be in conflict, perpetual conflict with the offspring of the of the woman. And that, you know, her seed would would basically fight with your seed and and, and you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And so this is a this is a prophecy that again is spoken from the lips of the maker. So the dragon has a problem right off the bat. He knows he's he's he knows there's a dragon slayer. That's what I call it, the dragon slayer prophecy. He knows there's a dragon slayer coming at some point, and that that dragon slayer who's going to crush his head is going to be born from the womb of a daughter of Eve. He knows that, and it's inevitable. God spoken. It's not you know will this prophecy come to pass it's coming to pass and so he goes about and he spends all of his effort and energy on foiling this prophecy frustrating this prophecy and so part so i you know the question that always really bothered me was you have this these this this group of entities called watchers who descend 
to the earth and engage in all this chicanery on earth, where was the devil? Where was the dragon during all of this? Why was he implicated in this crime? Right. And I think he was much more cunning than that. I think he probably maybe set the board for this to happen. Maybe he brought the pieces together, but he kept his hands clean enough not to be implicated in the judgment of the watchers. He did not commit their transgression yet. Uh, I think he will, but he hasn't yet. He did not commit their transgression. If he had, he would have paid their penalty. Right. He didn't. The justice of God is not arbitrary. It's not whimsical. As I said, the law of God is the law of God. It governs the universe. You commit the crime, you pay the price. The judgment fits the crime. And if the devil had committed the same trespass as the watchers, he would have been subject to the same condemnation. And he's not yet. So um, he kept his hands clean, at least clean enough not to be subject to their condemnation, which was to be bound in chains and so forth and, 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 and put down in Tartarus, which, by the way, isn't that what happens to the dragon at the end of the age? That's right. Sounds like he's committing the same <laughs> crime to me. So, so, but hasn't yet, hasn't yet. So, um, so this idea, this question of where, where, where's the devil in all of this? Uh, it's interesting to me because I believe that the dragon was involved in enticing the different elements here that were involved in the transgression of the watchers. Mm -hmm. But his goal, his goal wasn't to produce offspring on earth and do all of this yet. His goal was to eradicate the human species. That was his goal. That was his goal. His prime objective was to get rid of the offspring of Adam. Why? Because if he could eliminate the human species on planet earth, then he would succeed in foiling the dragon slayer prophecy. There wouldn't be any more daughters of Eve to give birth to a dragon slayer. Because the son of Adam is coming. And there's a son of Adam who's going to be born at some point in time who is going to crush your head. Mm -hmm. And so you got to stop this from happening. And this is, of course, what he does from, from start to finish. I mean, we see this machination all the way through the Bible. Lots of people talk about this, and, and it's true. It's true. This was the devil's, the dragon's primary objective. I'm going to eradicate the human race off the face of the planet and therefore um, and therefore uh, avoid this, this fate of mine. Again, pronounced from the lips of the maker. So his, that was his goal. The watchers had a different goal. The watchers wanted dominion of the earth. The dragon wants dominion of the earth too, and he's going to get it for a time, just like the watchers did. That's not until the end of this age. And so uh, I don't remember the question you asked me. Oh, and so, you know, so you have this, 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 the narrative of Christ. This is the driving narrative of scripture from, from beginning to end. This is the real issue here. Christ is coming. Christ is coming. And the dragon is trying to stop him. He obviously fails. Christ is born from the, from, from the virgin womb of a daughter of Eve. By the way, a uh, little, little, uh, little digression here. We were talking about C.S. Lewis earlier, right? Yeah. Do you remember who has the right to rule in Narnia? It's been years. <laughs> Only the sons and daughters of Adam. Oh, right. So, so C.S. Lewis was onto this, okay? And, and there was somebody trying to usurp the throne of the sons and daughters of Adam. And that was the witch, right, who came, who was not, you know, who was not a son or a daughter of Adam. Okay, so there's a little rabbit hole for people if they're fans of the C.S. Lewis. I'm telling you, Tolkien and Lewis were all over this stuff. Oh, yeah, definitely. 
And um, and so, um, you know, so this is this is the machination of the dragon and the machination of the watchers. They're they're they're, they're different. They've got different goals here. The watchers want to procreate uh, uh, half breed sons who can inherit the birthright of Adam, so that they can have dominion of the earth. The dragon, in this point in time, wants to eradicate the human race. Their purposes cross paths. They 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 dovetail. Mm-hmm. So the dragon doesn't get his hands dirty in their transgression yet. But he's going to. He didn't yet, though. And so their plan fails. Why? Because of what you just said. A pure stock was preserved. The, the, the unblemished line of Adam was preserved in Noah. Just in time, by the way. The days were shortened, Josh, <laughs> for the sake of the elect. Not to save their lives, but to preserve their humanity. Understand what I'm telling you? Yeah. So the days were shortened before the flood so that this probably, what was probably a, a germline genetic situation happening, just spreading out for, you know, by way of reproduction, corrupting all flesh on Earth, right? But the flood came soon enough, and 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 God ensured that Noah's line was not corrupted to preserve the human seed of mankind, the, the genetic seed of mankind. So the day, so and, and the reason why I'm saying it in these terms is because we know that at the end of the age, the days are going to be shortened for the sake of the elect. I believe not to save their lives. I mean, we're all going to die, right? Not to save our lives, but to preserve our humanity. Just like before the flood, I think the same kind of a scenario is going to unfold. Different, different for several reasons. Not exactly the same. I don't believe the watchers are going to get unchained. I don't, I'm not one who believes that the watchers are going to get unchained. And I, why would they get unchained? They've been condemned. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're in chains and they're condemned. I don't believe the watchers are going to be unchained. I believe that, 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 that the dragon is going to commit, um, he's going to commit the transgression uh, that he, that he didn't commit with the watchers back in the pre-flood world. He's going to do it, but he's not going to do it until he knows that his days are short and he's almost out of time. It's the last card that's going to be played. And that leads to the Battle of Armageddon. And that's uh, for the next talk. Do you have any last words for the audience? What, what do you want most for people to take away from part two of our, our discussion here? The concept of the birthright. The concept of the birthright, that people understand that dominion of the earth is the birthright of mankind. Good, bad, or indifferent. It's a birthright of mankind, collectively. Okay? And that our dominion is enforced by the armies of the kingdom. And that the game here, it's the game of dominion. It's the game of thrones. And the game of thrones has rules. And, the, and, and, and so if we understand the dynamics that are in play, then we, be, then we, can, then, uh, we, we can then begin to understand the dynamics that are in motion, the mechanisms that are in motion, at the end of the age. There's a reason why things happen the way they do in the end of the age, because the game is being played according to the rules. And and what the Watchers did, something akin to that, not exactly the same, but something akin to that is going to transpire at the end of the age. And so that's why it's important to work from, you know, from in my book, from 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 pre-Adam to 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 Armageddon. Because yes. I unfold this whole process and all of these precepts uh, from start to finish. 
And that's absolutely why uh, your book deserves a series instead of just uh, one short interview, because it's, it's, one of, it's one of the very few books that I've read that's, that's laid out this way. And I don't want to give the audience the wrong impression. It, it's technical, but it's easy to read. Like, you're not going to be lost or confused. You're not going to be bogged down in a bunch of complicated terms. You're going to understand perfectly what you're reading. But every idea does build upon the, the ones that came before it towards, uh, towards the final conclusion of the book, which uh, you, you need all the backstory for. So I'm really glad that, uh, that we're doing this series. And thank you again, Tim, for uh, being on for part two. And I appreciate this format, uh, Josh, because of all the interviews I've done, I've never really been able to actually lay out what the book's about. I've always had to give, you know, basically cliff notes on particular chapters rather than giving you the overview of, of, of what the book is discussing in, 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 in its totality. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I, I appreciate the book, appreciate your work, appreciate you, and uh, I'm looking forward to our next talk. So everybody watching, um, make sure to join us next time. Head on over to timothyalberino.com, check out his website, get his book on Amazon, and join us next time. Until then, take care and God bless. All right, a big thank you to Timothy Alberino for that. That was part two of our series on Birthright with author and filmmaker Timothy Alberino. If you want the entire series, head on over to dailyrenegade.com right now, get a membership, and you can find the entire series there. You don't have to wait. If you would rather wait, tomorrow at the same time, uh, we will start part three. So I'll see you there. Until then, take care and God bless. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.